Before we bring you this episode of the Bighorn Podcast, I would like to pass along my hope that everybody in our community is doing well during these challenging times. I would also like to pass along some common sense reminders that will continue to help us maintain a healthy environment. Many of these have been outlined in a recent email sent out by Tony, but I'd just like to touch on some of these most significant factors as a reminder, and that is, most importantly, maintain social distancing. This has been proven to be one of the most effective measures in fighting this virus. Also, hand washing. Hand hygiene is the most important measure to avoid the transmission of harmful germs and prevent healthcare-associated infections. So keep washing persistently and vigorously. And since we have many people walking around the community during this period, please be careful in driving around. And walkers, again, should not be in large groups. And please stay to the side of the streets. We are extremely fortunate to live in a community that affords us great benefits while allowing for a safe environment. In the end, the success of slowing the virus depends on all of us. We wish you good health, and we will get through this by observing these strict rules together. And now, the Bighorn Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Bighorn Podcast with amazing people and their extraordinary stories. I'm Marty Lockman, and this edition is brought to you with the support of Leeds & Son Fine Jewelers, a member of our community for over 70 years. We also appreciate the support of AT&T, who has joined in supporting the Bighorn Podcast. We also appreciate your kind words regarding our stories that hopefully have given you a greater connection to the people that make up our community. Most of all, thanks to the individuals that have been our guests for these podcasts. They have all been brave and vulnerable at times, sharing their stories of success and heartaches, but also sharing their private stories that have connections in an emotional way that inspires us all. Today's guest is Pat Mulcahy, a member of the Bighorn community since 1999. Professionally, Pat's accomplishments are many. Recently, the chairman of the board for Energizer Holdings since 2011. Pat, thanks for joining us today. And as we do with all of our guests, your story starts off in Ithaca, New York. Take it away. Well, thank you, Marty. Ithaca, New York was a a terrific place to grow up as a young man with a bicycle, a BB gun, and a fishing rod. You almost couldn't go wrong. We lived in a half a house that my parents rented. Because we rented it, I couldn't have a dog. My dad worked for New York State Electric and Gas. He married late in life at age 36. My mom was 31 or 32 when they got married. He was the son of an Irish immigrant, and he grew up in an orphanage in Geneva, New York. And it was unfortunate he was the youngest son in the family. The mother died of cancer, and his father actually ran away from the family. 
His older brothers and sisters got him out of the orphanage at some point and got him educated. He graduated from Syracuse University in 1929. And that was an issue because it was right at the start of the Depression, very hard to get a job. And my dad had really no parental guidance. And so he was really afraid of taking risks. And so when he got a, a decent job at New York State Electric and Gas, he kept it. But interestingly, and I'll come back to this, why it's important. He died when I was 21, making $9,000 a year. I had a great childhood, but because of how we lived, my early desires were pretty simple. I wanted to own my own home. I wanted to be able to buy a new car and I wanted to have a dog. I was a decent athlete and a decent student in high school. I graduated 93rd out of a class of 405, but this is a college town, and you're up against some kids that are pretty smart, one of them which was Paul Wolfowitz. I went on to be uh, working for both Bush 41 and 43. My out, because my parents really couldn't give me a significant amount of money to go to school, they could afford two to $400 a year, was West Point. I really wanted, at that time, to make the military a career, and I thought I'd be pretty good at it. So I wrote my congressman, who was up in Auburn, New York, and I thought, well, I got a chance. I was the captain of the track team and the president of the Letterman's Club. Uh, I got a letter back, which was quite interesting. It was my first significant disappointment in life. And I've had three, and they all turned out to the betterment for my life. But he wrote back a letter and he said, son, you're not West Point material. Your grades aren't good enough. You just don't stand out in any way. So my only opportunity really to get an education at that time was to walk up the hill. We lived about halfway up the hill to Cornell. So I walked up the hill, had an appointment with the director of admissions at Cornell's Ag School. Cornell's an interesting university because it's a land-grant college. It has two state colleges within it where the tuition was $400 a year versus the normal engineering school was $2,200 a year at that time. The two colleges were agricultural and life sciences and industrial and labor relations. So if you went to those two colleges, even though you're at Cornell, the tuition was affordable for me. Interestingly, when I talked to the director of admissions, he said, well, what do you want to do, son? He said, well, biochemistry looks interesting to me. And he said the same thing the congressman said, son, you haven't got the smarts to be a biochemist, but we've got this program over here that we're happy to let you into called agricultural economics. It was fate in a sense, because as soon as I got into it, I loved it. The courses were interesting. I found that, you know, it was a great education. And so I didn't make the dean's list my first semester, but for the next seven semesters, I did. I also joined ROTC, which allowed me then to, if I wanted to follow a military career, to do it, ran track, and surprisingly did so much better in college because I loved what I was studying, but I also loved to compete against quality people, quality students. It was kind of interesting. I had this great advisor, Dr. Applin. I've named a chair at Cornell for him because he was so good and loved, but he pushed me. He saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. I didn't have a lot of self-confidence, but I ended up being the brigade commander of ROTC, the top cadet colonel, captain of the track team. And because I'd done well as an undergraduate, you were allowed at that time to double register and take your senior year as your first year in grad school. And Doc Applin pushed me to do that. I wasn't going to do it, but it was really fortuitous 
I ended up getting a State Farm Foundation fellowship that gave me a free ride for those two years. So I didn't get to go to West Point. I did get my commission. So I still had this opportunity to be an Army officer. And what was interesting also was as the cadet colonel, the commandant of West Point came up to Cornell to retire the colonel, who was a Medal of Honor winner, the actual Army head of uh, ROTC. And so I got my bars from the commandant of West Point. Did reasonably well in graduate school. And I had, because when you had summer camp in ROTC, six weeks of the summer, really eliminated getting a summer job. Well, I got a Danforth Fellowship, which gave me some cash, but also a two-week trip to St. Louis and then up to a camp. And the camp changed my life. The Danforths were the ones who founded Ralston Purina Company by William H. Danforth. They also founded an organization called the American Youth Foundation. So there was one student from every land-grant college in the country that went through this program. And so I was one of those guys called a Danny boy. And how that changed my life was at this camp, the 50 of us, one from each state, spent five days with five leaders. One was a senator the president of Purdue, a bishop from Nashville, and David Lewis, who I got to know later on the Ralston Purina board. But Dave was the president, a young man, but the president of the McDonnell Douglas Aircraft Company that was making Phantoms at the time. And the aha moment for me was, these people are just like me. You know, they grew up with average backgrounds. They made their way. They weren't born, you know, becoming the president of McDonnell Douglas or a bishop. And that aha moment really did change my life in terms of giving me a lot more self-confidence as to who Pat Mulcahy was. Uh, Let's back up. When I was interviewing my graduate, uh, when I graduated from my business program, the MBA program, those were the days when you got a lot of job offers. So I had an offer from General Foods and from Kodak and Procter & Gamble. And the the company I really wanted to go with was General Mills. And they didn't want me, which was fine as it turned out. Ralston Purina, as I viewed them, was simply a big feed company, principally animal feeds, chows, you know, for hogs and horses and what have you. They had a nascent group, a pet food group, pet food and cereal called the Grocery Products Division. Well, they came after me really heavily and asked me to come out. And what was very interesting was when I got there, I just liked the people that I met. It was only 11 people in the whole marketing group. I wanted to be a product manager. And these were just terrific people. Back up a little bit. I had gotten married the end of my senior year in college, and my wife was a nurse. I had met her in high school, but she was a transplant from Iowa. So she actually wanted to get back to the Midwest, and it was going to work out for us. I accepted the job as a marketing assistant at Ralston Purina and spent 90 days there in St. Louis, really getting to know the company and getting to know the people, but really not doing much. I took my commission in September of 1967, went to infantry school, and And interestingly was uh, Bob Pike was there at the time. Now he was a captain because he had already gotten his law degree. I didn't know Bob then, but we've talked about happenings that happened to both of us in September, October, 1967. I went on to intelligence school. It's an oxymoron I know in the army and was trained in imagery interpretation. I don't even want to explain that. And then got orders to go to the Pentagon 
to work II. And I felt if I still wanted to potentially make the Army a career, you really had to be in the first team. And so I volunteered for service in Vietnam, thinking, well, you're going to get a cushy job in Saigon or something along those lines. Went to Vietnam in June of 68 and got there. You spend three days getting socialized. They said, son, you're the first replacement for what's called MACV forward. I said, what's MACV forward? They said, well, it's on a fire support base called Fubai. It's just south of Hue in the north. My job turned out to be extremely interesting, but the first 30 days is difficult. And I was 23 at the time with a family. Those poor kids that were 17 and 18 that were replacements, I don't know how they did it. My job was most interesting. I was XO order of battle for Tuatian province, which was Hue, the Ashaw Valley, down to the High Van Pass. And what that meant was pretty simple. Every day I had to put together an intelligence briefing based on all of the information that was coming in from either POWs, friendly guerrillas, ELINT, what have you, and then brief the G2. And those skills really helped me later in life in business, both briefing but also making sense out of data. While I was there, about midway through, I got a letter from the division president of the Grocery Products Division at Purina, and I couldn't believe it. They said two things. One, you know, we're looking forward to having you come back. We appreciate your service. We're taking your your salary up. I forgot to mention this and why it was important. When I first hired on, my salary was $9,600 a year and $600 more than my father made when he died. And they raised my salary while I was in Vietnam to $11,000, over a 10% increase and gave me two years of service for my pension at Purina. And that's the kind of company it was in terms of quality product, quality people, and wonderful. Well, got out of Vietnam. I spent 13 months there and got an early out. Picked up my wife and two children, and we drove from Syracuse, New York, where she'd been you know, spending time with her parents, living there with the kids. And no vacation and started work immediately in July of 1969. I walked in the door. They said, you're marketing assistant on dog chow, working for a great guy. And the two of us, he said, well, I'll run dog chow and you can help me, but we're going to give you puppy chow and dog meal. So I was essentially a product manager immediately. We had no books on what we were doing. You know, it's just a great learning experience. We, we made mistakes, but for the most part, we were a force to contribute, you know, great things at Purina. The next eight or 10 years, I was in marketing and cat food and dog food. And in 1979, I was a division vice president, director of marketing for human foods, as opposed to pet foods. Human foods are cereals and snacks. So check cereals and check snacks mix, rye crisp and what have you. And I love the job. A lot of freedom at Purina that a lot of other companies don't give you. I was a division vice president at that point, which was pretty good. At that point, I had the dog, I had a house, I had a mortgage, but we bought a new car. So my new goals were simply to make sure we got the kids through college and pay the mortgage off on the house. I was president of something called a management advisory board. The CEO at the time was 63. He had come up through the buying organization, and Purina was kind of a mess. The pet food business was really doing well, but the CEO had spent a lot of money on these nascent businesses we owned Van Camp Seafood, Chicken of the Sea. We owned Jack in the Box and Continental Restaurant Systems. We started up Keystone, a ski resort, bought Arapaho, 
And then we started a protein technology business, a shrimp farming business, a mushroom farming business, and a plants business, all of which were losing money. In 1979, you could have bought Ralston Purina for $1 billion. That was the market value. The board was not happy because the chairman and CEO at the time also went out and bought the Hockey Blues without telling the board. And he promised that they wouldn't lose any money, but they did. So as the president of this management advisory board who met, you know, there's about 12 of us division vice presidents that he wanted to get to know, we decided to do a paper. And the paper was really, how would we run the company differently? Well, it was not well received, which is okay. He thought that he would continue on, that there was nobody that could replace him as the chairman and CEO, tall, Handsome guy, had his picture in the front of Business Week, that sort of thing. My director uh, was a guy by the name of Bill Sturitz, and I'll come back to that. Bill was a very interesting guy. His parents died young. He lived with his grandfather, worked his way through college playing poker, joined the Navy, was a Navy pilot, got out, and then got a master's degree at Northwestern. But the master's degree was in history, wasn't in business. Bill is a brilliant guy. He's, he's alive today, and he's the executive chairman of uh, Post. So coming back, we wrote this paper, which was get back to the core, sell off all the junk that we have. The board was not happy with the chairman and CEO, and they said to people in the company and outside the company, we're going to be looking for a new CEO. Well, Sturitz, who was running grocery products, and we were the only business really doing well, was an outsider. The rest of the senior management were all the ex-feed guys and purchasing guys, and they didn't like him. But the board did. Uh, we wrote this paper, which was called Getting Back to the Core, and he essentially used me to write that paper. Well, he got the job, and over the succeeding 20 years, if you had invested $10,000 in Ralston Purina, 20 years later, it was worth a half a million dollars. If you kept your money in the spinouts and all that we did, it would be worth about $2 million. Bill is chapter six, I believe, in the CEOs of a book called The Outliers, the most successful CEOs in the 90s. And it was very simple. He was dogmatic in terms of how he approached things. He didn't care about earnings. And this is learning for me, but he cared about cash flow. Well, I was happy, you know, at that time when he first got the job running the cereal group. He wouldn't let me do that. He was, that was my second disappointment. He said, I'm making you director of corporate planning. You're going to come up and be my assistant. We're going to restructure the company together. And he did. And I hated it because it was a staff job. I had to work with the four operating officers at the time, and I ran the staff functions. But in retrospect, I learned human resources. I learned all the staff functions, finance, what have you. Well, I did that for six years as a first a division vice president and corporate vice president. In 1986, uh, after we sold off a lot of businesses and got the company and bought back some shares, Union Carbide, a huge chemical company at the time, got in trouble through the Bhopal incident. They killed 29,000 people in India. They were fined $4 billion dollars. And they had to raise some money. The Raider was after them. So they sold off two businesses. And one was the battery business. At the time, it was called EverReady Battery, not Energizer. And they were really focused on carbon zinc technology, not Elkland. Well, we took a look at it. We got the briefing memo in the morning. We met at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. That's kind of how we did things and said, 
we like this. We think it's kind of interesting. We think it can, we can run it better than they do. And we put a bid in for $1.4 billion and we got the business. And Sturitz said, uh, I'm sending you to Danbury. You're going to run it. Now, every assumption we made on the business going in was wrong. It was totally different than pet food or cereal. It's a little chemical factory. They had 43 plants around the world. More than half the business was international. And it was really a merchandising business but they were running it wrong, focusing on an old technology. So I ran the business with the help of some really great people, and we did reasonably well until uh, 1998. But in 1997, the guy running the pet food business, a great friend of mine, Pat McGinnis, and I were named co-CEOs of Ralston Purina. At that time, I was running Purina International and EverReady, or Energizer. We had a terrible year in 98, and Sturitz, uh, who was the executive chairman, called for a breakfast on a Friday morning in Clayton, Missouri. So we were sitting and having breakfast, and Bill fired me, which I thought was uh, was interesting. He hadn't told McGinnis he was going to do it. And he just said, Pat, um, you know, the business is performing poorly. We need a change. You're out. So I went home and uh, and talked to Midge and I said, hey, I got fired today. Spent the weekend. Actually, it you know, if you're doing badly, you want to take it under yourself. And I actually felt a lift in terms of feeling, you know, this was the right thing for him to do. I didn't go to work on Monday. He calls me up and says, well, I didn't really fire you. What I, I need you to do is spin the company out. I want to put it out as a separate company. Let me back up a little bit. The second disappointment for me was getting divorced in 1993. And it's kind of a funny story in retrospect, but my wife and I at the time, she was a terrific mother. We had four children. I thought she was a good corporate wife, but I mentioned she was a transplant from Iowa when I met her. We're riding a bicycle. We're out on a bicycle trail, the Katy Trail outside of St. Louis. And I stopped and she pulls up to me and she says, out of the blue, I don't like you. I don't love you. And I think I'd like a divorce. Now, our last child was a senior in high school. I was absolutely in shock and and depressed. And we did some counseling, but separately. She didn't want to do it together. That was a good sign. So she finally made the decision that she wanted to a divorce and she wanted to go back to Iowa and live her life there, have horses, get out of, as she put it, the big city. It was devastating at the time, but it led to about nine months or a year later, me meeting Midge. And she, you know, was a much better partner, understands the corporate life, really has brought me into places like Bighorn. And I'll come to that in a second. So... We did spin out Energizer. The things that I learned as a CEO, I knew I was going to say as a public company CEO, we went public New York Stock Exchange on April Fool's Day 2000. And I wanted to do things a bit differently than Ralston Purina. So we did three things differently. One was we created our own incentive plan. And it was really focused on paying lower cash compensation, but offering more incentive in terms of shareholder value. If we created shareholder value, then the management team would do well. The second was we really didn't have a senior management team. We called it the debate team and everybody was on it. If we had an issue to talk about, we locked ourselves in a room and we would hash it out. So the head of HR, the legal folks, the business unit heads, we would all participate. And the third thing was, I'd learned this from the CEO and one of the founders of Jack in the Box, Jack Goodall, a great guy. 
And it was all about honor and doing the right thing. And our mantra was, you know, no matter what, we're going to do the right thing. If we don't, we'll take the consequences. And today, the company still has that mantra. Well, we came out at $20, $20 a share. After about three, four months, the stock dropped down to 12 as people sort of moved out of a new company. And 15 years later, when we built the company up again and split it, the stock was 140. So it was up about 12-fold. It's fallen off from that, but no matter. We essentially did the same thing that Sturitz had done. We don't focus on earnings. We focus on cash flow. It's, you know, cash in the bank gives you all sorts of opportunities. So we bought Schick, we bought American Safety Razor, Playtex, Banana Boat, Hawaiian Tropic, a whole bunch of other brands using the cash flow from the battery business. And so we had a great run and in 2015 decided to split the company between what was the battery business, battery and flashlights. And I took that as the chairman and then what we called Edgewell, uh, personal care EPC, which was Playtex. It was all the other products, tampons, what have you. So that's kind of our history. And I want to go back and tell you one story about the bunny, which today is 29 years old. In 1986, when we bought the company, Mary Lou Retton was sort of the personification of energy and she was a spokesperson for Energizer at the time. Duracell was eating Energizer's lunch. The Copper Tot, they had a, you know, a great campaign. Well, in Australia, our company out there had moved from a 35 share to a 55 share by using an Australian rules football player. The rules are no guns, no knives, by the name of Jocko. And in one year, Jocko had really put through the message at the time, we were better than Duracell. We were 10% better and that you have to have at least a 10% improvement over competition to make that claim. So I brought Jocko into the United States without any testing and put him on the air and it was awful. The more money we spent against the campaign, the, the more share we lost. So our agency in Chicago, terrific agency, Needham, Harper and Steers, they did McDonald's and they did Kellogg's came up with the bunny as a short-term campaign. So here we have this big bunny walking through with attitude, walking through a wedge of Duracell bunnies. Duracell always had these little toy bunnies banging on drums, and our bunny, EB, walked through the wedge and knocked their bunnies down. We loved it. Needham, Harper, and Steers hated it. They said it's not a campaign idea. It can only run for 12 to 20 weeks, and then we've got to put something else on the air. It stinks. Well, because we liked it, we said to four or five other agencies, what can you do with this? And Chiat Day uh, was one that came in with two campaigns. The first campaign was what we call Bunny Interrupt, and it was EB walking through fake commercials. One looked like Irish Spring, and so a guy's in the shower, and the bunny walks through banging his drum. We loved it without testing again. We knew it was uh, kind of a risk because Duracell was known for their plush bunnies. But we called up Chiat Day, or Jay Chiat, the founder of the company out in Los Angeles, and said, Jay, we're going to move the business to you. We love the campaign. He said, oh, wonderful. I, this is just great. He said, you know, I really didn't like that bunny thing, but this other campaign is just great. I said, no, Jay, you don't get it. We're going with the bunny campaign. 
and the rest of this history. It's been on the air now for 30 years, revitalized over and over and over again. And it's really just done wonders for our company. So Marty, that's kind of my story. That's, uh, that's you know, for poor boy from Ithaca, New York, who never would have thought I'd end up being the co-CEO of a big company and the CEO and chairman of another. Being here at Bighorn, you know, the, the most wonderful place that you can possibly be. And my parents, if they could see me now, it would be incredible, but uh, they can't. Well, it's not only your parents. Um, look at the people along the way, the West Point story or the General Mills story or any of these stories. You're a competitive guy. You react positively. Some people fold when they don't get their way or that they have disappointments. But time after time, these disappointments were turned into successes because of your attitude. What drives you to do that? And what would you tell young people that face that same sort of situation in their careers and their lives? You know, I've, I've thought about what drives me, and it's not adulation or success. It's failure. And it's the fear of failure and the shame of, of failing I can't stand it, and so I would do anything not to fail. I don't have to win, however, and it does sound like, like it's a dichotomy, but in fact, it's not. It's just how I feel. You know, if I think about young people, and I've talked to my own children about this, it's really go where you feel comfortable. And I've felt, you know, comfortable going into Ralston Purina and feeling welcomed by those people and then working for 50 years now with really great people, and great people beget other great people. The other thing, you know, I would tell young people is really do something, do anything. There's, I, I don't know who wrote this, but if you love your job, it's not a job. You know, it's not drudgery, it's something you really want to, to do. I think, you know, I think that's about it in terms of philosophy. You know, I've just have been extremely lucky, and I've been lucky here at Bighorn because of the people I've fallen into. You and I were talking earlier. My father died young, and virtually all of my friends here have made their own way because their father died young. Jeff Henley, Mr. Everything at Oracle. He's had every senior position, chairman, vice chairman, CEO, Air Force pilot in World War II. After the war, he stayed in the Air Force and was killed in a dust storm in Egypt. Jack Higgins, very successful banker. Jack's father was a Boston cop and died in his 40s. Marty, your father died young. Uh, Bob Pike, father died young, made his way through law school, becomes, you know, vice chairman of Allstate, and on and on and on. Virtually every one of my friends has the same story that I have. And I don't, I think it's because we wanted to succeed maybe wanted to make our, our parents and our fathers proud. I don't really know, but I just find that uh, I've fallen into a group of friends just like that. So you look around and there's so many great stories here at Bighorn of people of like ilk. Well, absolutely, and that's been one of the great things about doing these podcasts is being able to listen to those stories and we all can learn from them. I think that there's a lot of the people that you bring up. There wasn't a master plan that anybody had. It was out of necessity that you start doing things and you get into a various careers and then you maximize that opportunity. But that shows the fortitude of all of these people 
that regardless of what has happened in their young life, they overcome that. But it isn't because of a master plan. It comes with just the basics, hard work, you know, intelligence, willing to learn, being great with people, whatever the situation might be. Now, agreed. I, I must uh, compliment my wife, Midge. She's really who got me here. I could have lived in my cave in St. Louis. Uh, that's kind of how I was. I used to buy my clothes at Boyd's Bargain Basement. Midge has changed all that. And virtually everything she touches has turned to gold for me. So it's been, you know, it's been a great relationship. But she's the one who dragged me here. I never saw myself living in California and living in a, you know, a place like this with uh, the great friends I have now. Well, that leads into another question that I have, and you've touched on it with Midge. But who has had the greatest influence on your life? Yeah, Doc Applin, uh, early, you know, in terms of pushing me to see that I was maybe better than I thought I was and push me to go to grad school. Terrific guy, and I stayed in contact with him for years until he passed. And then Sturitz, who uh, was and still is regarded as one of the preeminent businessmen. Bill is still a great friend and somebody, you know, I just admire his fortitude and what he's done. And, and again, his parents died young, and it's kind of like he made, you know, that, that decision that he, he just had to succeed. Pat, you mentioned about Midge being one of the driving forces of you getting to Bighorn. Why don't you tell me what brought you to Bighorn, uh, what your experience has been here, and also what was your feeling the first time you ever met Artie Hubbard? Marty, um, I didn't really want a second place while I was still working, but Midge said, you know, you've really got to broaden out here. And she was the one who dragged us up here, and she said, this is where I want to be. The second course was, I think, under construction, and we met Ted Llewellyn, who was the nicest man. And as we drove around Bighorn, everybody waved. Everybody said hello, and we thought, boy, this is really welcoming. So Midge put a stake in the ground and said, well, let's try this. So we bought a house over on four on Matate, and I commuted periodically and really met people here as we were talking. When you're in a corporate life, you really can't make close friends with people that you're working with. And so I found my friends here. And as I said before, we sort of fell into people of like backgrounds that liked each other. And over time, we loved it. We bought a lot and built a second house. And then Midge likes to build houses. She likes to build things, and she likes to build beautiful things. And now we have a third house up on Texas, so we're a, a neighbor of RD. This place is really special, and you have to say it's special because of the vision and drive of R.D. Hubbard. I don't know R.D. well. We say hello in passing. I don't know that we've ever really sat down and had a discussion, but you have to hand it to a benevolent dictator who had a vision and really had the guts to, you know, stay with and do what he wanted to do. I couldn't have done it. I would not have taken the risk that R.D. has taken and done the things that he's done. So, you know, you, you simply have to respect a gentleman that had a vision and has really delivered on the goods. We're happy here, and I, I would say Midge dragged me here. I'm still that poor boy from Ithaca, New York, in a sense. I still make my own golf clubs. I sometimes fix my own golf cart. It's, um, it's just ingrained in me to maybe not spend too much money, 
But Midge, on the other hand, balances out the family. So it's it's just a place that you hate to leave. You hate to go someplace else and leave your, your friends and the Bighorn family here. So I just say that, uh, you know, we've been very happy here. And uh, Midge built what is our total retirement home. Our, we're not leaving here. It's all on one floor. So when the wheelchair comes, uh, Pat's still here. Also, don't you think, Pat, that we talk about culture before? There's a culture created here, and part of our family is the people that work here. And I know for myself, when we go someplace else or we bring people in, they always comment on how lucky we are to have the staff and everything that works at this place. Yeah, it's incredible. They are family, and I hope all of our members treat them as family. They are just wonderful people. They, they certainly treat us as family, and it could not be better. What qualities do you look for in people that worked with you? You know, first, there's sort of a cut, and the cut is you've got to have a decent background, say a decent education, whether you come up through sales or whatever. But integrity was the most important thing that we looked for. We wanted people, and if if we found somebody that didn't have her integrity, that did work for our company, we gave them the home course. Honor, you know, when I lay on my deathbed, I, you know, I don't want to look back and say I did something dishonorable. So the most important thing, everybody, there's a lot of people out there that have the skills, and most of them have integrity, but that was the most important thing when you looked at people that made the cut. Doesn't that deal with, too, you're creating a culture at a company? when You've taken over companies that didn't have that culture, and you have to create that culture and integrity and the, and the things that you've talked about are extremely important if you're going to move forward and have... Um, a winning attitude, if you will. Yeah, uh, definitely. The Union Carbide was a very interesting company, very different than Ralston Purina, very driven operationally because they did have these plants all over the world. But their culture was one of kind of kicking down, abusive to people below them, and I couldn't tolerate it. So we did, over a two- or three-year period, replace people in the organization to make them more in line with the kind of culture that we wanted, both at Ralston Purina and then at Energizer. You talked about creating value in companies. So the question I have is, quite a few companies you see try to save their way to prosperity rather than drive the top line. It sounds, when you were talking, that it's important to continue to add to that top line, able to increase earnings all the time. Yeah, it's... um, Energizer, the battery business throws off a lot of cash. And so we were able to buy all these other companies and grow our top line that way. But yeah, we we focus on cost, but you do, we still, the same model, we just bought two big companies, got ourselves into the number one position in auto care. So we own Energizer, EverReady, batteries and flashlights. We own Rayovac, we own Varda in the battery business. And then we bought Armorall, STP, and a whole host of other brands just recently to continue because we're really a distribution company. We're in 165 countries. We have more points of distribution than Coke or Pepsi or the cigarette companies. And it, uh, it really is a, you know, it's a global business. And so if, if you look at it as a distribution company, then we can add a lot of things to our portfolio. You know, we have to keep putting cash in the basement before you can do it. What has been your management philosophy? 
Well, I count on other people. I come back to, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, and I know it. And so I come back to our debate team at uh, Energizer. And so the philosophy is really, you know, hire really smart people, good people, quality people. Let them run the business. And, you know, I sit back. I'm a pretty good listener. You know, we debated things, and we usually came out with the right, the right solution. And we always said, you know, if we had a really tough decision, have we done the right thing before we left the conference room? And so, you know, I've just been blessed in terms of the opportunities I've had. If I look back even 20 years ago, I think I would have been happy just, you know, making it to marketing director and paying off the house and getting the kids through college. You mentioned, and I wrote it down, this debate team. Uh, and said that you would just sit in a room until you came up with a solution and you would talk it out until you came to a uh, place that you wanted to move forward on. Wouldn't that help us in today's politics? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm sorry for, for laughing, but I just can't see the Trumpster and, and Nancy Pelosi sitting in a room and debating things and, and working it out uh, and really, say, have we done the right thing? If we were to lock the door, I'm not sure we could come back. That's, that's right. That's for sure. Uh, with all your accomplishments, what drives you today? And what does the future look for for Pat? What drives me today? It's kind of interesting. I think it's legacy. I don't want to have a negative legacy. You, know, you used to see CEOs that did the wrong thing and went to jail or what have you. What drives me today, working on my golf game, reading books, I still will work with management. I'm one of the larger shareholders in the company, and I've I shouldn't say this, but I intend to keep my shareholdings. Uh, I like them. They like me. I won't interfere with the company in any way. The CEO is certainly in charge. Um, what drives me? I guess I get up in the morning, work out. I see you in the gym. You know, family still. I wasn't a good dad. That's one of the reasons my, my first wife... Uh, she, you know, was the old model of marriage. I'm the breadwinner. She runs the household and the kids. And she was kind of a block. But today, I'm a good dad. I've got a really good relationship. My oldest daughter, as you know, passed away from breast cancer. But the other three kids are uh, not kids anymore. I have grandchildren. And so um, leading an honorable life, I don't want to, you know, lay, you know, in the deathbed and say I have done it wrong. I like to be respected by my children. What advice would you give the 20-year-old Pat Mulcahy today? Well, what's interesting is, as I mentioned, I had three things that I, at the time I thought were failures. And I think you work through those and you come out the other side, whether it's a divorce, a death in the family, uh you know, a setback in your career, and you simply work through them. And I think you have to look forward and say, we're all going to have some setbacks. And if you handle them in the appropriate way, you'll come out the better for it. A better person may be more successful. I also tell people a career is not a sprint. There's setbacks. You know, you might be in a job for quite some time, and you need to find some other outlets, whether it's golf or flying airplanes or playing tennis or reading books so that your career is not everything. And I, I 
would say that my career, I love my jobs so much that to a large extent, my career early on was everything. Well, Pat, I personally want to thank you for coming in today to take the time to do this. And for those of you listening, these are lessons not about just business, but about life and people that have experienced it and had the success that Pat has had come in and share these things, I think makes us all more connected, certainly. And now we all know more about Pat Mulcahy than we did before. But also these are lessons that really uh, help other people. And I, I encourage you to share this podcast with young people because it gives them kind of a, a path that they might look at as uh, being involved in business and in life. But Pat, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you, Marty. And thanks to Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers and AT&T for supporting these podcasts. And we look forward to the next episode of Interesting People with Extraordinary Stories, the Bighorn Podcast.